Hey everyone, it's Peg Queen with another episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast. Finally, right? Before we begin, I should apologize for a few things. The sound in this next podcast, it sucks. And there's nothing Chris, my producer, could do about it because I was sitting in an empty house when I recorded this conversation over FaceTime. But that's also why it's been so long since our last episode. Because in the past few months, I've been in the process of moving from D.C. to Montana. I'm here now in Bozeman and I'm getting settled. But damn, who knew moving would take so much energy? Clearly only those who have moved, like Greg Nardi, my guest today. Ironically, he was also in the middle of a pretty significant move himself. In fact, in today's episode, Greg and I started off talking about why he and his husband, Juan Carlos, had to move from this country a few years ago due to discrimination, and why they're finally now coming home. Actually, Greg and I covered a whole lot more territory. We talked about love and relationships. We talked about pain. And of course, we talked a lot about the Ashtanga yoga practice. Though I am actually kind of embarrassed because I did a lot more talking than I usually do. But in my defense, Greg is so darn easy and enjoyable to be with. I think I just got comfortable and forgot I was recording sometimes. Because with Greg, it's like there is no mask. No dogmatic walls, no barriers of judgment. He's just so loving as a teacher and as a person. And why even though I've only met Greg once in person, he's still like one of my most favorite people on this planet. Listen to him in this episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast and you are going to see why. Here's Greg Nardi. Your thing is philosophy, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's my thing, but I really enjoy it. <laughs> I, I remember, do you know, I still have the notes um, from the workshop I took with you in Philadelphia. I know. When was that? That was a couple of years ago, huh? It was a while ago, but I still have the notes. Um, I've been packing up my house because I'm leaving. So I found the notes that I took, and I took a boatload of notes with you. In the- okay. You and the four other people that were there, right? No, it was a packed room. Thank you very much. But um, <laughs> in fact, I was kind of a little bummed when you left Philly. Yeah, well, that was always going to be like a temporary gig for us. Because so, we were in the middle of our transition to Canada. And so, so that's where you're living now. We're living in Vancouver, but we're actually in the, move of, in the middle of a transition back. <laughs> so... So walk me through that. Why did you move to Vancouver? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a bit of a convoluted story, but um, kind of for love um, and kind of because of discrimination. <laughs> so my husband uh, is from Panama and he was in the United States on a, a work visa and a student visa, a student visa and then a work visa. But his visa was tied to his employment and they wouldn't they couldn't really sponsor him for uh, citizenship and because of a stupid law called the Defense of Marriage Act I couldn't sponsor him as my husband either so we needed to kind of work out how we were gonna both get citizenship in the same country and Canada is one of the few countries in the world that you can self-sponsor as long as you qualify and uh, Juan Carlos qualified I did not so he sponsored me uh, as his husband to move to Canada and then, as you know, there was um, the repeal of the Defense of Marriage Act uh, happened just about four months after we got to Canada. <laughs> and so we started the immigration process to come back. So now I'm sponsoring him for his residency here in the United States. So it's really a beautiful story. So you did do it for love. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it was, it's been about a, a six year process altogether, actually. So we're like in the final stages, we think maybe by. June, we'll have the uh, residency, um, if all goes according to plan, and we'll be back in the United States by the summertime. So that'll be great. So when did you get married? We got married actually uh, two years ago. April 20th is our our two-year anniversary. And it's coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How long did you guys know each other? Uh, It's about seven years that we're together. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. How did you meet? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> These are my typical questions. I want to. Yeah, I <laughs> we actually met online, um, 
and then we just sort of had a date and he's he's a bit younger than I am he's about 10 years younger so I was sort of like oh forget it I can't date this guy he's too young for me but then like he asked me out again and I was like I kind of liked him you know when you just know right away that you like yes. somebody so as soon as I let myself get out of my head <laughs> and just sort of follow my heart and I was like all right fine we'll you know I'll meet him again and we went for a second date and it was just like from there on out like six months later I actually went to Mysore. That's always a tough one to explain to a new love. By the way, I check out for two months every year. <laughs> so I go to Mysore and it was like, you know, of course, everything got super intense. That's a make or break moment. And I came home and he pretty much moved in with me at the, after that. And then we really got serious about, okay, what are we going to do to stay together? So Okay, so... I'm laughing because a little bit of your story is kind of like mine. I'm the younger woman. My husband's 10 years older. We did meet online as well. Oh, cool. Um, he I never know how that's going to hit when you say that to people. I know it's a modern world. A lot of people do it, but you know, there's still a stigma, right? <laughs> oh shit. And I said it online too. I never usually will, will tell people um, that for the same reason, because I don't know, they look at you kind of weird, but how else, I mean, how else do you meet anyone? I don't mean to be, but I get up at, you know, oh, dark early. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> I just happened to, it just happened to be a moon day and that's the only reason why I didn't have a date that night. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And my husband thinks that he gave up Montana to be with me in DC. So like that to him was a whole nother country. I mean, this was a big deal. Um, so you guys long distance? Is that? No, he was just kind of back and forth, but he really wanted to make Montana his home. And that's actually where we're moving in a few months. So we're going, he's, he has, yes, we spent 10 years here and now we're going back to, Oh, I'm sure that DC is going to miss you. <laughs> I, I'm going to miss them too. They can't get rid of me that easily. I will visit, but, um, yeah. So I, I was wondering how that visit to Mysore went for those two months. Does he practice? Basically, let me cut to the chase. Does he practice? Oh, well, he teaches now. No. <laughs> He's already had his own pilgrimages to Mysore and he's, you know, he's on track. So no. uh, yeah, sometimes I'm like a little bit like, oh shit, what did I create here? <laughs> we, we, um, you know, because it's, I mean, he was like, he got his master's degree and he was like on a career track for that whole nine to five thing. And now we're trying to like hustle as two yoga teachers, you know? <laughs> so in some ways it's beautiful because of course now we're sharing common lifestyle. You know, we have this shared passion and we're going to, we're planning on opening a shala at some point and teaching together. Um, but you know, at the same time, it's like, wow, it's really intense. You know, sometimes you got to know when to turn the switch and shut it down. Right. Like, so you don't end up talking about your students over dinner and then right before you go to bed and totally. you know, yeah totally no my husband never took the dip not at all never took the dip no no in fact i don't know if i should say i'm gonna tell you a story it is really funny he goes to some yoga parties with me we have like a, a quota that i make him do but invariably, right. people will gather around him at some point during the party and say so do you do yoga and my or husband says only as long as it took to get laid and I'm like oh we're leaving now <laughs> no well that's part of it right like we went through that too where with Juan Carlos in the beginning it, I don't you know I don't know if he would say it exactly that way but you know he dove in with both feet because there was the whole courtship part of it yeah. right and, and then after about like three months he went the other way he was like totally like why are we going to bed so early like I want to be out I want to be this you know so I hear you. <laughs> the funny thing is, and so he doesn't practice the physical practice, but what I laugh about is if you walk into our house and you see the different scrolls and the spiritual literature and he was a philosophy doctorate and he's, they're all him. You know, he's the one who's been to Nepal. He's been to India. He's traveled to all these places and studied um, the philosophy uh, so yeah. much deeper than I, than I did. So does he have like a, a area of interest or is there, does he have a practice? Oh my gosh. We are like on a whole nother like realm, right? My mother, my husband is also an atheist. Um, okay. 
but he knows more about God than anybody um, I know. And one of the things I actually fell in love with him was he said his philosophy was, if you know the right thing to do, it should be difficult to do something different. It should be impossible to do something different. That to me, without any backing of religion or you know, heaven and hell, um, that sort of stuff was really disarming and lovely. So when we talk about the practice, I always say to people, no, he doesn't do sun salutations for sure, but he embodies the practice more than anybody I know. All the practice does is point you in a direction, right? Like the practice is the goal in and of itself. So there's many ways to get to the goal. Some of us just need to jump around on the mat a lot. (laughs) I like jumping around on my mat a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so would you believe I have an article sitting up on my desktop right now that you can't see? It's entitled, Without Pain, There Is No Yoga. Oh, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> An oldie but goodie. <laughs> it's a great one. But talk to me about that, would you? Uh, remind me what it says. <laughs> um, <laughs> It was a reference Physical to, uh, pain is such a deeply instinctual response that speaks directly to our self-preservation and which brings us face-to-face with some of our deepest held assumptions about who we are and why we exist. It was pretty deep. Mm-hmm. You went right into the whole dukkha suffering thing right off the bat. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's kind of the human condition, right? We all suffer. It's one of the great unifying things about who we are. And I think that you know, similar to what, what your husband says, like, to me, pain and suffering, although it is a part of life, it's it's a message for us. It's a message that maybe we're not in harmony or in line with, with truth. And so, you know, whatever truth might be, that could be a whole nother, you know, hour-long discussion. But so, so to me, pain is not necessarily something that we want to run away from, nor is it something we want to ignore. It's something that is just, you know, it's like, that great teachable moment. It's that sort of sign that's saying from the universe, like, hey, look a little bit deeper here. And, you know, we can then sort of get masochistic about it and, and, you know, just butt up against it and hurt ourselves more. But I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's just sort of like, if you start to pay attention and you dig a little bit deeper, you're going to find that that what what we initially sort of react to as pain is really very, very kind of multi-layered and you can really dig into it and start to untie that knot bit by bit, you know, and as you untie that knot, whatever it might be, a physical pain, you're going to realize that, you know, it's, it goes through the whole system. It goes through the physical layer, it goes through the emotional layer, it goes through the mental layer, and you're really going to have to repattern yourself in order to, you know, rather than suppress the pain, you know, kind of get rid of the pain or, or, or relieve the pain, so to speak. And I think a lot of what we do in terms of pain, I mean, you look at our medical system, it's all about suppressing pain. We don't want to suppress pain. We don't want pain to go away. We want to relieve the pain. We want to see why is it there and what can I do differently to, to live a, a fuller life, you know? So to me, that was a great thing because I, I, that was, uh, the quote came from Patabi Joyce uh, because I had always learned you know, doing yoga practice and I would have this pain or that pain and teachers would say, oh, if there's pain, you're doing it wrong. Don't do, don't do that or modify that or whatever. And I went to India the first time and I said, you know, I, I thought that poses were optional. <laughs> My first time in Mysore. They're not? No, not according to Guruji. So I got to, you know, Marichi Asana D and I just like wasn't feeling it that day. So I decided not to bind the pose. And they were like, go upstairs and do finishing. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I know so many more poses than this, you know? And they went up, did finishing. So the next day I came down and come hell or high water, I forced myself to bind thinking that I had to earn my poses. And then pain started to come up. And so there was like, I was living in this duality of like either or. And then I sat with Guruji. I said, I've got pain in my knees and, and this and that. And he said, yeah, yeah, the first three years, you're going to have some, some knee pain. And I said, well, Guruji, it's been about five years. He said, yeah, yeah, the first five years, no problem. (laughs) And it was sort of like this place that I had to come to where it didn't have to be either or like, I have to do all my poses, but I don't necessarily have to hurt myself. What I need to do is I need to really just be responsive to whatever the practice is bringing up in me. So pain is part of that, you know, pain is going to come up. What you do with the pain and how you react to the pain, that's up to you. But you can't just spend your whole life avoiding pain. It's just not possible. Damn. 
There goes my, my bubbles burst. Wow. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I do. I, I, obviously I wouldn't have this article on my desktop and I've had it for quite a while. Um, mm. If I didn't also believe that there was so much growth in being able to experience and even, I don't know, get friendly or intimate with it, you know, get to know it, where it comes from. Um, mm. But that takes work on my part because I'm a big flighter. I'm not a fighter. I'm a flighter. I, um, when something gets painful, you know? Yeah, I know. I hear you. I, I can, I, I've, I've run the gamut. I've run from it. I've tried to barrel through it. I've tried to compromise with it. You know, I've done the whole thing. I think we all, anybody who's practicing for some time, you, you get very comfortable with a range of sensations, let's say, that can be very, you know, discomfort, uh, uncomfortable. And I always think it's like, they say, like, the Eskimos have, like, all these words for snow because it's such a big part of their lives. Like, with Ashtangis, we just get all these different words for sensation. You know, like, people come to me and say, oh, I, I have this pain or I have this feeling in my body. And, and I start to ask them, like, well, where is it? What does it feel like? How big is it? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it, you know, and, and I find typically like as you start to ask people, they really just, they haven't really dug any deeper than there's a, there's a sensation there and it's kind of intense. There is good pain and there is bad pain. You know what I mean? It, I, I would even say like, you know, I don't like this term good pain, but you know what I mean? It's like those really intense sensations that, uh, that, that make us pay attention, that wake us up a little bit. It's, it's you know, life too, right? I mean, I don't, I don't wish bad times on anybody, but I won't lie. The times I've learned or grown the most have been difficult times. Yeah, it gets you out of that mechanical kind of day-to-day -day existence, you know. It gets my attention, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I wouldn't certainly want to invite it into the world but when it's there it's just like what are you going to do about it like you have to deal with it one way or another and and I, I think what it does is we tend to have our, our certain paradigm and our certain way that we like to live our lives and we keep trying to make that paradigm fit every situation and there are just times where it stops serving you where your comfort zones start to break down your paradigms start to break down and then what you know what I mean? That's when most of us run. That's when most of us are out the door. But this is great because anytime we think we've got some sort of idea of what truth is, we're typically, we've missed the point. We've put a limitation on something that's limitless. So if you really want to, like, you know, we, we can understand that our, our, our conditioned ways of living, they're, yeah, we need those to, to get through life. But at the end of the day, we should realize that it's, it's a useful thing that we do. It's not reality. I have a theory that people that have come to the place where you are, where I can read this piece that you wrote, that you have experienced pain in the past. Like you've had experiences that have taught you this um, up close and personal. True. <laughs> Do you want to share? Are you asking? <laughs> yes. Uh, sure. I mean... I think there's all sorts. There's the physical pain that, that perhaps comes up in practice or in life. You know, there, there's just like that. Listen, I asked my, my philosophy teacher one time, we were talking about Dharma. And I asked him, you know, in sort of the modern world where we don't have, you know, caste system and all the sort of rigid social things that typically define Dharma in ancient India. Like, how do we know what our Dharma is? You know, everybody's talking about speak your truth and, and this kind of stuff, which, which all can be a little bit, you know, very subjective and relative, right? Everybody's got a truth that they're trying to speak. So how do we know what is Dharma? And he said, really, Dharma is what makes you thrive. And I thought, what a brilliant answer. And, you know, there have been so many times in my life where despite my best efforts, I just can't seem to get it together. I can't seem to thrive, you know, and what have I've had to really come to terms with is what's my part to play in that. Sometimes I'm not thriving simply because I'm trying to fit a square peg through a round hole and it's just not going. And I'm just as hard as I try and bang it through, it's not going to go. And it's like, oftentimes what I have to do is just come to that place where I'm just so exhausted of doing the same things that I just let go and I surrender. 
And then all of a sudden, perhaps, you know, I start to feel that, that sense of, oh, right, I forgot. I've been trying to do things for my ego. I haven't been listening to myself. I haven't been, you know, tuning in, referencing back to myself. And when I start to do that, when I get that little piece of like calm, which might happen after a depression, it might happen after anger, it might happen after whatever, you know, and then, then all of a sudden I find a, a new path forward. And that's typically what I'm looking for. And, and this happened to me, you know, many times in my life. Um, as a kid, I was uh, severely asthmatic. Um, and I think that set me up with feelings of always feeling like I needed to keep up with the other kids and always feeling like I needed external validation from people, you know, and I think as long as you're living your life looking for other people to make you okay, you're not living your dharma, you're not going to thrive. As a teenager, I was, you know, depressed and, you know, turned to drugs and all sorts of things. And, you know, and this was all just like me just completely unaware of how to follow, you know, my own truth, right? Um, and it wasn't really until I started to learn yoga, when I first walked into my first yoga class, had no idea what to expect, um, really was just going because a friend invited me. And it was like the first time I think I spent time just listening to my body and feeling my body was a safe place that I could explore. And it was so like I felt that vitality. I felt that I felt like I was thriving for the first time in my life. And I knew there was something there. I don't think I knew what it was, <laughs> but I knew that there was something there and I wanted more of it. And there have been times when yoga practice has been a real sanctuary for me. There's been a time where I've used my yoga practice as another type of prison, trying to conform to the method, trying to, you know, earn poses, all the trips that we lay on ourselves. Um, and I haven't been thriving in my yoga practice. And to me, that's always sort of my measuring stick. You know, whatever is coming up is really, you know, am I thriving in this practice? Do I want to practice? You know, am I practicing in a way today that is going to motivate me to want to practice tomorrow and the next day and the next day? Sometimes I do well. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it's work. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, I, I think it's work, but I think that when you know it's work, Mm. Um, it makes the work at least a little easier. It's an interesting kind of work, isn't it though? Because it's like, it's not about doing, you know what I mean? Like I'm a hard worker, right? But there are some times where despite my best efforts, I'm still like struggling through. So there's also like this ability to just sort of, you know, find equanimity, find equipose in the midst of the doing and the, the effort and the work and all that kind of stuff. Well, I, I brought it up for a couple of reasons. A, mm -hmm. you are one of the most joyful people I've ever met. It, it <laughs> is true. You smile and light up a room. Your sense of humor is darling. And your sense of community online is amazing. You wow. bring people together. I mean, the name of your social network. Ashtanga Yoga Worldwide, yeah. I mean, it was interesting because I didn't want to do like a Greg Nardi yoga thing. Um, you know, I've got mixed feelings about social media generally. So <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I get it's like part of our world these days. And, and I actually do, you know, like there are times where I find it really fulfilling. I get a lot of great information and we stay in touch as a community. And then there are times where it's just like information overload and a lot of marketing and all that kind of stuff. So, so I, I kind of, you know, tread lightly in that world. Um, and I felt like I wanted to do something that, you know, really was about us as a, a community. And so I have a page where basically I do a lot of sharing. I don't do a ton of original content. I mostly just see what's interesting out there, uh, what people are saying. And I put it out there without necessarily, I don't put an opinion on it very often. I, I try and represent both sides of things. You know, I don't put a lot of the um, instructional videos up. I feel like there's plenty of people doing that kind of thing. It's just more, you know, I like the conversation that we're having about, you know, who are we as a culture? Who are we as a people, as Ashtanga yoga practitioners in the world? So that, that comes through. You A lot of really good discussions start on your site. And I do notice that you rarely put anything out that, you are doing I you have to kind of look for you um really I mean I didn't know where you were today I'm like where is Greg um but 
you do uh, bring together a lot of different people and a lot of different ideas. And I think you do an amazing job at really just starting conversations that are meaningful um, without putting your spin. I, I, I know it's you, but that's what makes it all the more um, amazing. So then My I couple that with your, with your discussion on pain and, and kind of, I see you as someone who's willing to go into those places too. My only sort of rule around dialogue, you know, with issues in Ashtanga yoga is that we're kind to each other. You know what I mean? Because sometimes these online conversations can get a little, you know, dogmatic. We like to split ourselves up into teams and take sides and, you know, this is the true way and this is the true way. And, Listen, like, there are a lot of true ways to practice. There are a lot of Ashtanga yogas out there. And I feel like everybody deserves a voice. You know, the big question is, is it working for you? And if it's working for you, I don't see a problem. Like, I can practice my version of Ashtanga yoga, and you can practice yours. And we can talk about it without having to agree or, you know what I mean? We can disagree, and we don't have to get, like mean with each other <laughs> you know we don't have to be exclusive and and kind of push each other out or make each other wrong i mean i see multiple truths as as possible you know are you thriving am i thriving right that's that's your question right are, are you, you thriving that's exactly. that's your dipstick that's it that's really it and i think you know to me like we need a method we need a system and quite frankly i'm i'm uh, absolutely indebted to Mysore and Patabi Joyce Guruji and Sharat uh, and the Joyce family because they do something really wonderful for us in the sense that they sort of maintain the method and the system for us. Because if they didn't, it would be just a shit show, you know, I mean, quite right. frankly, right? So like somebody's got to do that. And they do it really well. And then it's up to everybody else to kind of make their way through it. Like, here's the system. But the system is, again, it is, it's a path. It's not the goal. The goal is to thrive. And I've seen a lot of people following the method who aren't thriving. And I've seen a lot of people who, you know, use the method as, as a way to heal themselves. And they become better people and more compassionate and loving people. Um, so I want to see that system survive, but at the same time, I want to see people engage it in a way that really uplifts them and works for them. And, and yeah, that helps them to thrive. Well, that definitely comes through. I think when I was, you know, raising children, my youngest is 18, my oldest is mm -hmm. two. Um, you know, in raising them, you try to instill all your belief systems, right? The things that you believe in and, and want for them and have... Uh, held important in your own life and they take some of those and, and actually most of those sometimes they go away from it and they reject it and they fight it and in the end most of them come back to the same premise but in different ways you know in their own way I mean they hold the the foundation but they're their own people and they um mm make their own way. And I guess I think of it a little bit like that. There has to be that family that says, this is what we believe in. This is what we do to give that strong foundation. Um, mm -hmm. Then you have to have faith, right? In the, in the ones you instill that with, I have to trust that my kids, you know, have spent enough time with me and know what we think is important. And, yeah, sure. And then I have to trust them and their own individuality and, and making their way. And I don't know. I, I think really like, you know, we can choose to, every one of us, realize it or not, are agents of social control, right? Like we're constantly conditioning each other all the time. We're, you know, whether we do it by judging each other, whether we do it by, you know, peer pressure, whatever it is, you know, we're, we're all constantly telling each other how we think that they should live their lives. <laughs> you know, at the very least, we're telling other people how they should treat us and how we expect them to view us and these types of things. And so, you know, this is the big question is, you know, how do we get along in society, you know, realizing that we have to maintain certain systems and certain rules and, and things like that. And at the same time, allow for everybody to be an individual, 
you know, allow every realizing that there are times where, you know, the system really works and everything moves along smoothly. And there are times when the system breaks down and we need to, you know, in the absence of a system, can we still find that that sort of inner voice? You know, can we still find the inner teacher? Um, that's, I think, really where we're heading to. All of these systems are there to get us somewhere. My mom used to say, don't confuse the vehicle with God. Yeah. And, you know, like you brought up God before and, you know, we were talking about your husband and God is like one of those words that is like people, it's a very loaded word. <laughs> you know, people have a lot of ideas about what that means. And I think typically what happens, you know, I know when I was growing up, I thought of like some bearded old guy in the sky who was judging me. Right. And and that's, we get this idea of this external thing that's like looking over us and that's separate from us. And I don't know that we need to define God or follow a belief system. It's really just about understanding there is like some sort of limitless potential that we all arise from that connects every one of us, you know? And like, to me, that is really what we're after in all this, like just living in that constant embrace of that, you know? And, and if we need to do a lot of, yoga to get there great you know like most of us do <laughs> i do i do because <laughs> i forget all the time <laughs> you're so humble and so sweet um i have wanted to ask you to be a part of this for quite some time because i do remember that workshop that i took with you that weekend and it was quite meaningful and i wrote you recently about mm. You did. <laughs> did. Because I finally, well, I won't ever say that I understand anything, but I had another level of understanding of the way you're, you described Bandas. What was that? Oh my gosh. Okay. So I, are you, are you interviewing me? Are you asking, are you testing me to see if I remember? <laughs> no, actually remind me. <laughs> okay. Um, you, I remember is a very physical thing. I always, and I think I thought back then that I kind of knew what bandhas were, right? It was like, oh yeah, I know what that is, right? You like kind of lift up and, um, and so I thought I was doing it probably at the time. And now I pretty much know I, I have no idea. So I guess I think I'm further along on the path, but you gave a very, um, a very wonderful cue. And that was that the two sit bones and the, and the pelvic bone and the tailbone kind of ground down and the area in between hollows up. You gave the grounding, the two opposing, um, and I think I thought it was a little bit more physical and effortful mm -hmm. than I, I think you probably described back then. And I finally had a, a little bit of a, oh, wait a second, I think this might be what Greg was talking about a long time ago. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, we've all heard the, you know, squeeze your anus, right? And that's how Guruji described it to us. And, and there's something really powerful about that, you know, squeezing the anus. It's it, it sort of, you know, it, it gets us in the area, into an area that's very uncomfortable for a lot of people. And it's very unconscious for a lot of us, you know, the, the pelvic basin. And so, you know, we tend to, but what we do, it's very hard to squeeze the anus without also kind of armoring everything around the pelvis. And so we end up in a place where we're using what we think is Mula Bandha and Uddiyana Bandha, but really what we're doing is we're just kind of locking down the area. And so it's no longer dynamic. There's no energy moving through it, you know? And so we have to find a Bandha that allows, you know, for this real dynamic. I mean, look, how are you going to fly? How are you going to float forward and back and, you know, switch? I mean, that is your center of gravity is right inside of that pelvis. So if you don't get sort of a dynamic control over it, instead of just bearing down and locking it down, it's, you're, you're going to be like a dead weight, you know? So. Yeah, no, I do know. Yeah. <laughs> and just, just to give credit where credit is due, I passed that information along, but that was something I learned from Richard Freeman years ago, years ago. He was the first person to define Banda for me in that way. And it was like, same for you. It was like a aha moment. I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. I get it now. I get it. It gave me something practical to actually continue for years. Um, kind of looking for, you know, I kind of, but you're right. I did more of a, um, a pulling up, 
pulling together and contracting um, in the area and never let the freedom of it happen. Um, mm. And finally got a, a little, and I didn't really have awareness. I like what you just said a few seconds ago that most of us don't have a lot of awareness in that area. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? I, I think I definitely fall into that criteria. <laughs> there are a lot of parts of my body that have had to wake up a little. Why do you yeah. think that is? And I'm genuinely asking. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. We can sort of riff on it, but I don't know if I have any answers. Um, I, you know, I think some of it is simply the way that we're constructed, right? Like, I mean, if you look at the human body, all of our sense organs are on the front. Everything is designed to go forward. And, you know, like the front of the body is the more vulnerable part. You know what I mean? So we have certain areas that we are very protective over. So yeah. we have more nerve endings in the front. We have less nerve endings in the back. You know, the inside of the pelvis tends to be real dormant for a lot of us. And so I think what ends up happening is there are certain parts of our body that are just more conscious than others naturally. And then I think that a whole bunch of other social stuff gets laid on that. You know, you've, you know David Kyle very well, and you've heard his whole converging histories thing. But it's like, you know, we've got all of our... Genetic history are the accidents we've been through, the emotional traumas we've received. You can go all the way back to potty training if you want, you know, like sexual issues. Right. But everybody has stuff about their pelvis, you know, that we tend to really sort of put outside of our, our conscious awareness. And the, the inside of the pelvis, the pelvis is a basin. And I, I always kind of refer to it as like a cave of wonders, you know what I mean? Like you got to go inside of that pelvis and all sorts of things will start to come up. And it is not a place we're used to going, you know, and I think largely what we do is just those outer, that outer band of gluteal muscles just gets so kind of rigid and does all the work and kind of pulls the pelvis around. Our legs and our, and our pelvis kind of start to fuse together after a while, you know, and we, we start to lose the ability to, you know, get that independent grace that we're really looking for. But I don't know. I don't know why it is. It just seems to be a pattern that that we, we all, you know, seem to recognize uh, is true. Uh, if you look at the energy anatomy of the body, of course, we know that that's where they say the kundalini resides, right? So what is that? Um, kundalini is supposedly all of the, they say whatever, the dormant serpent energy, we've heard that, but it's like all of the obstacles that we have, all of the unconscious stuff that prevents us from taking that spiritual journey. You know, what is it that keeps us, seeing separateness rather than unity, you know, and there's, there's stuff, there's unconscious stuff. And that is represented by the Kundalini. That's what we're trying to wake up. So that's where the journey begins. That's why the bandhas are there. You know, it's to, to get that awakening to happen inside of the pelvis. And it is not the outer pelvis we're talking about. Mm -hmm. mm. And that's where, and you said, that's where your center is. That's how you balance. That's where you go to. That's, not, I go to here. I'm, <laughs> I'm pointing to my head. <laughs> and I don't think I'm alone. And that's the furthest point of my body away. Right. In, in my head, right? <laughs> I go to the top floor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, you see that in, in backbends all the time, right? When people are trying to come up from backbending, what's the first thing to do? They try and get that head up as fast as they can. Yes. And their whole body just becomes like a huge weight and they can't get themselves up, you know, but if you can train yourself to come up pelvis, rib cage, head, you know, nice in an order, everything starts to come nice and smooth. So it, it is true. We tend to live in our brain. We're, we're constantly told that our brain and our consciousness are the same thing when we know that they're not, you know, the, in the Indian philosophies, they say the seat of the soul is in the heart, you know, which I think is so much more beautiful. The center of your consciousness is your heart. So, you know, stop leading with your head, start leading with your heart. <laughs> yeah, and I go back to the way uh, we started the conversation, and you sort of do. <laughs> right. <laughs> On my better days. <laughs> but I go, I, go, I go back to this, on your better days, but you're not willing to have the bad days. I mean, you're willing to have the bad days. Too. You're willing to go into the dark places. And I think what I hear you say is, we need to be willing to go into those places um, to find the kind of joy I look at you and see that mm. I have to be willing to go to the, in the seat of my pelvis, apparently. And <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, 
I mean, that, that's very sweet. Thank you for saying that. Um, but I think, you know, I think one of the reasons why we are hesitant to go into the dark places, so to speak, is, you know, because when we do, we tend to get very identified with it. It's very heavy. And so we don't say like, oh, you know, there, you know, there's sadness or, you know, we say I'm sad as if, as if it defines us and it doesn't have to, you know, and I think that's, if there's one thing I think that yoga can really give us, it's that equanimity so that we can go into the dark places without having to be defined by them. So I'm feeling sadness, not I'm sad, or I'm sad, but I'm feeling sad, you know, and sadness, feeling sad is a temporary state and it has something to offer us just as much as happiness does. And if we can sort of go into all those places without being identified with them, like this is who I am and nobody's going to love me because I'm, you know, sad and depressed or whatever it is, you know, you know, then, then perhaps we can realize what purpose that is serving in our lives. I mean, listen, everybody needs to go into a state once in a while where they need to regenerate. And, you know, sometimes we, we crash because we've been flying too high. You know, we're, we're, we did a little Icarus. I, I remember years ago, I was seeing this therapist and she asked me to go into sort of a bit of a liminal state, you know, go into a subconscious state. And she said, pick two symbols for myself. And I don't know why I did, but the two symbols I chose were an egg and a phoenix. You know, and I thought it was, I don't know why, I don't know where it came from, but I've just really thought about it over the years. And it was like, you know, the egg is like, sometimes I just need to get in my shell and I need to you know, gestate a little bit and see what's going to be born. And then I'm ready to rise again. You know what I mean? But both are necessary. That's beautiful. I love that. <laughs> really symbolic. Right? I know. Nice. I, that's, it just sort of came out of, I don't know where. It was nice. It came out of your egg. Um <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And that's really meaningful for me to um, hear you say. It's so funny. I've been going through a, a bit of a tough run lately, and I thank you for not making me cry because lately that seems to be my MO. And I'm like, I'd like to get through a podcast without crying. This would be my goal. Um, no crying. No crying. Um, but yeah, it's hard because that's what can trap us is by identifying that I am or I Instead of this is how I'm feeling, that's it. It's just is right now in this yeah. moment. All I got. Um, and it's not me later. What is it? And it's not bad. No. You know, and I think that's what we do is when we when we 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 have an idea of how we think we should be or we'd like to be, and when we don't meet that standard, instead of accepting it, we judge it. But that's easier said than done. How do you right? How do you not? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> try and, you know, build up as good, as much good karma as you can when you can, you know, so that when you find yourself in the tough places, you know, you just get through it. I remember one time being in a meditation retreat and I asked a very similar type of question. I was like, you know, there are times when I'm sitting in meditation and, you know, I'm just so caught up in my thoughts. I don't even realize I'm thinking and like uh, 25 minutes or 30 minutes will go by and then I'm like, oh, Right. I've been thinking for the last 30 minutes. I'm supposed to be sitting here meditating. And so I sort of said, well, how, what do I do about that? I asked the, the teacher, you know, when, I, when I'm caught up in thinking so much, what do I do? He said, honestly, there's nothing you can do. He's like, all you can do is when you have that moment where you realize, where you come to your senses, so to speak, you know, then, then you can do something about it. But when you're caught up, that's just your karma. You know what I mean? And you just, you just forbear it. When you have that moment where you realize, okay, you know, I was caught up, forgive yourself, have a little bit of compassion, and then do what you can from that moment on. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good... Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it does. It's, it's exactly hard to do, constant practice, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but like you said about the square peg in the... No, the... Round peg square yeah, peg. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you'd think i get the pegs right, but no. <laughs> You know, as soon as I said it, I was like, oh, I'm talking to Peg. I don't know if it's... I... <laughs> <laughs> but you do, we try to fit them, but that's what, I mean, that is kind of the base of where that suffering comes from, right? We're trying to fit what we think the shape should be. And, yeah. you know, when it doesn't fit, we can keep yeah. trying to jam it or I don't know. But, yeah. yeah. 
I'm a big fan of, of as often as possible, accepting ourselves, accepting who we are and, you know, and you're right, it is imperfect. There are times where we fall into self-judgment, we fall into judgment of others, we fall into, you know, and, and oftentimes like that can happen when we're feeling good as well as when we're feeling bad. When we get complacent because everything's going really well, we're sowing the seeds for our future suffering right there in that moment, you know? <laughs> All you people out there feeling good, you... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's just like, you know, when we tend to live in extremes, we're going to bounce back and forth. Ah, uh, isn't that funny? Mm. That's, I guess, the lesson that Guruji um, kind of taught, right? In the first, with the hips, right? The the knee. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the story you just told. Yeah, you go back and forth. And I do think that the practice gives us a great metaphor for these things in our life. You know, where we see how we behave right there on the mat, going mm. dreams or um judging ourselves too harshly or i don't know escaping or embracing or whatever it is it kind of comes up um every day i don't know and that gives yeah. like a place to look at it i guess isn't that beautiful though and it takes some time to even arrive to that place where we realize that you know because in the beginning we're just trying to like do the practice yeah we don't realize that there's like a whole sort of relationship that we have with the practice. We're just trying to get it right. You know, and like, if you look at the way kids grow up, mm -hmm. like, I don't know how you were raised, but the way you described God sounds an awful lot like the one I learned about. Um, mm -hmm. So I grew up Catholic. Um, Me too. I kind of figured. I, My mom's actually a church musician. No way. My mom is a secular Franciscan. Really? I don't know what that means, but she'd be happy to tell you if you call her. Um, uh, no, I do know a little bit more. But, you know, when you're growing up, you learn the fundamentals, right? You learn, uh, we could, you and I could probably go through all the stories of the saints and the things that we learned through our, you know, um, sacraments and various things. And then you know that that's a really, um, it's a really necessary thing that we have to learn. I think to grow, right? You have to, it's where our conscious, it's where our learning ability is at that point in our lives. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think that we get kind of hard on people when they're starting yoga, like they're supposed to understand, right? And I think that's where I was going. Like, why can't we let people just like, it's a really cool practice too. Like it's, a, yeah. it's kind of fun to learn. And I, I hate when we, sometimes take some of the joy away from learning the physical practice it has yeah. a place one of my very first he was a meditation teacher he wasn't a shanga teacher but he was brilliant he said when you teach you have to teach students their next step not your next step oh my god i love that oh it was like it was such a I, i've let that guide me throughout all you know all the time that I've been teaching and because it's so easy of course you learn something new you go to a workshop and you come home and you're like okay now everybody's gonna do it this way you know like 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 it's about you you know what I mean and really like our job as teachers is really just to like give space for the students to do their own exploration so we have to give them a method sure we have to give them a step-by-step -step process otherwise they wouldn't know what to do they just come and they'd be lost so we give them a method but it's their practice it's, you know, they're the ones who have to make the method come to life. And we're just supporting them in that. Now I remember why I took so many notes when I was with you. <laughs> and why I was so mad when you left. But now that I know why you left, I'm... <laughs> well, we will hopefully be back in Fort Lauderdale, Florida by the summer. And uh, hopefully you'll come down and visit us sometime. I don't know if the if the yoga studio model is really where I want to go. I feel like it's it's a really tough grind, and I don't know a necessity in order to really get yoga out to people. Um, right now, and who knows what's going to happen, but like I have this sort of real desire to work with smaller groups of people in a more intimate way. So I might just kind of host, you know groups of like five or six people for a week at a time something like that that that's like kind of my my current dream <laughs> is that your current dream mm -hmm. i have this amazing place in bozeman montana okay. that is like the perfect place to teach small groups 
<laughs> I see this in your future. <laughs> okay, well, let's keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I, will, I love the way, just, you, just the way you answered. You're going with the heart first. Right. <laughs> I've learned that, you know, like there's been enough times in my life that I've created a plan that has just completely fallen apart. <laughs> so now I create a plan and I leave a lot of room for spontaneity. Well, if this is the kind of joy that digging into my pain creates, I'm in. I'm going right. to my shell. I got, I'm rising as a phoenix, but I'm, in, I'm going to my shell. <laughs> Good. Do them both. Do them both. You got to keep the apana and the prana. <laughs> oh, thank you, Gray. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thanks for hanging out today and listening. Greg is officially back in the U.S. and thriving, I might add. Understandably, he's got a pretty busy teaching and traveling schedule, which you can find on his website, ashtangayogaworldwide.com. I loved Greg's symbols of the egg and the phoenix, didn't you? I feel like the last few months, I've been gestating a bit myself. But here's the really exciting news. We are getting ready to rise again pretty soon. We've got a brand new logo, a new website, and an amazing new issue of the Ashtanga Dispatch magazine. Seriously, you guys, this one is epic, with all original contributions from the teachers we love. I'm so excited. It's actually hard for me not to just tell you all about it right now, but I'm not going to. For once in my life, I'm keeping my mouth shut. Now, if you want, you can make sure you're the first to know by going to ashtangadispatch.com and scroll to the bottom to join our mailing list. On another note, many of you have written me wanting to lend your support to our not-so-little labor of Ashtanga love. Well, there's actually a few ways you now can. Visit ashtangadispatch.com and click the donate button on top for ways to contribute. And just to say thanks, for every $30 donation or more, I will personally send you a free copy of the next Ashtanga Dispatch magazine before it's even available online to the public. But listen, truth is, I appreciate all the support, the heartfelt messages, all the sharing online, and all the ways you contribute. I never feel alone. Never. And a big shout out to my producer and editor of this Ashtanga Dispatch podcast, Chris Lucas. Make no mistake, without him, there would be no podcast. By the way, Chris, I promise never to record in an empty room again. Thanks, everyone. It's good to be back and out of my shell. See you next time.